5, 16 through 24. Um, you can find that on page 975 in the House Bibles. Um, but if you're able, please stand with me um, as we read God's word aloud. Um, we'll begin in verse 16 of Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is God's word. Um, I'm going to invite Aaron on up, and um, we'll go ahead and pray together. Heavenly Father, Father, thank you so much for your word um, and all that you reveal to us through it um, with the help of the Holy Spirit. Um, I just ask that you speak through Aaron today as he preaches and that you help us to know and remember that we can never attain any of these things out of our own effort, um, but help us to abide in you and trust in your grace um, through all these things, and that you help us to give that grace to others in our lives as well. Um, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Until this time. 
Uh, one of the reasons my wife, Caitlin, wanted to move into the house we have now is because the previous owners had built a pretty large enclosed garden space. And I won't say I put you know, a ton of work into it. Uh, my main responsibilities have been uh, helping put together the, the, the beds, the boxes, uh, moving a bunch of dirt into said boxes, and then making sure our LaCroix was nice and cold when Caitlin was done gardening. Uh, but I can tell you that from what I've seen Caitlin do, a lot of work goes into gardening. Uh, and if I could give you just one more plug for spending some time to walk around our neighborhood, uh, there have been several occasions where we've been walking and we've interacted with people in their gardens and they just offered up some of their produce to us, uh, peppers, corn, tomatoes, okra. Um, and we had to learn this the hard way uh, when we started gardening, but the soil in this part of Missouri is not always the best for a backyard garden or front yard garden. But in spite of that, there always seems to be plenty to share. Our neighborhood has been a fruitful one for a lot of these gardening families. And now you may be wondering, what is he talking about, you know? What, what does this have to do with our passage? Should he just like get a job as a realtor or something? He's trying to you know, plug the neighborhood. Uh, good question, but no. These observations, they all have the same basic elements of our sermon passage this morning. Walking, work, fruitfulness. So this is where our focus is gonna to be today. Paul says, walk by the Spirit. Resist the works of the flesh. Bear the fruits of the Spirit. And as you can see on the screen, our main theme for this whole book of Galatians has been only Jesus. And this morning I want to spin that just a little bit. I want us to see together that only the Spirit of Jesus equips and empowers us for the life of discipleship. So let's dive in. If you've grown up in church, or maybe if you've been a believer for a while, you may already be pretty familiar with this passage. Um, I hope I'm not overestimating that, uh, but it just seems anecdotally that this is a pretty common, pretty popular passage that a lot of us have read through before, which is good, uh, don't get me wrong. Followers of Jesus need to be familiar with his words. But sometimes we can be so familiar with the passage that it becomes easy to remove from its context. We see this through the Spirit passage. We take it out of Paul's letter to the Galatians. We put it on a cross stitch. And then we stick that cross stitch next to our fruit bowl in the kitchen. So we need to know not just the verses themselves, but how these verses fit into Paul's whole letter. And how they shape our lives in light of that. So let's remember, quick, quick kind of review. Let's remember the overall purpose of Paul's letter. Bad teachers have infiltrated the church in Galatia, and they are telling Gentile Christians that you have to be Jewish to worship the Jewish Messiah. Becoming Jewish would include things like circumcision, what you eat, who you eat with, and keeping the Sabbath. In Galatia, uh, the big thing was circumcision, and we've already read about a kind of who you eat with incident back in chapter 2. Uh, but on its face, you think that kind of makes sense. You know, Jew, Jesus was Jewish. He was promised in the Jewish scriptures. So you need to be Jewish to be on team Jesus, right? But Paul says throughout this letter in so many different ways, that's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. 
The Messiah was promised to Abraham as a part of this blessing to the world. Followers of Jesus are under a new covenant. In the Messiah, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no more male and female, because we're all united together. Observing the rules of the Torah doesn't get you into God's family. Only faith in Jesus, only our allegiance to him as king does that. In fact, life in Jesus' kingdom means that we're free from the rules of the Torah and our slavery to sin. This is our passage from last week. We're set free from sin so that we can live to bless one another, which brings us to our passage. Take a look down at verses 16 through 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Do you ever feel that tension? Uh, these verses have a very Romans 7 kind of vibe to them. Uh, that passage where Paul goes back and forth on his battle with sinful desire. He can't do the things he wants to do, the things he knows he's supposed to do. And instead, he wants to do the things he knows are wrong and the things that he should hate. He's caught in this battle between the spirit and the flesh, which is a place I can find myself pretty often. I'm sure y'all can find yourself there often. The Holy Spirit in us keeps us from doing the evil things that our flesh wants to do. But our flesh is always trying to pull us back, pull us away from what the Spirit is trying to do in us. Thank God that His Spirit is stronger than our flesh. And I love that verse um, at the end of this section. You know, If you're led by the Spirit... You're not under the law. Cars, know this. Lists of moral rules can only correct our behavior. But the Spirit transforms our inward natures. Lists of moral rules can only correct our behaviors. But the Spirit transforms our inward natures. As we mature as followers of Jesus throughout our lives, we should continue to see the Spirit working in us changing who we are to resist our old sinful desires. For the last uh, couple weeks, I've been teaching middle school Bible classes at a local Christian school. And I think more clearly, maybe than ever, I've seen this truth in action about how you know, moral rules only correct our behavior, but the Spirit transforms us. The, the class that meets before mine is a college credit, Old Testament survey class uh, for seniors in high school. Some days I'll go in, I'll sit in the back at my desk and work on my lesson plan for my class. Uh, the group of seniors, they are attentive, calm, they're focused on the material. You can tell that they really want to be there. I mean, it's an elective, they had to sign up for it. In short, they're mature. But sixth graders, on the other hand, I can get them to focus on the material for stretches of time, uh, but a lot of classes spent calming people down, helping them be attentive. Um, it requires a lot of rules about how to behave. In sixth grade, 
There are rules about sticking your finger or your pencil in someone else's ear, but not in 12th grade. And it's not because sticking your finger or your pencil in someone else's ear suddenly became okay, but it's because they know that that's dumb and gross. They're more mature and they can operate without the rule. Because over the last six years, they have literally transformed into different kinds of kids. Lists of moral rules only correct our behavior, but the spirit transforms our inward nature. So Paul sets up these contrasting natures, the flesh and the spirit. He goes on in the next couple of sections to demonstrate what each of them looks like. First is the flesh. Check out um, verses 19 through 21. This is the flesh. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, en enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now there's a lot going on here. Uh, Paul just kind of, you know, shotgun blasts 15 examples of sin. Works of the flesh, as he calls them. Uh, and then he tacks on at the end, and things like these. So we know that you know, this is not the final list. There's more things. Um, and we could go into, you know, what all these different things kind of are, all the nuances. But I think that would probably take too long. For now, I think it's enough to notice three categories of works of the flesh that Paul discusses. Categories that they overlap, certainly, but they're also distinct nonetheless. So for starters, and this is the largest category here, we have sins against other people in the community. Enmity, strife, jealousy, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. These are sins that create distance between people, between families, between brothers and sisters in Christ. These are sins that destroy, that they fracture relationships and destroy entire churches. Paul also lists kinds of sin that we commit against ourselves. And that might sound kind of strange at first. Uh, in, our, in our context, we've almost lost this category entirely. Um, you know, left and right, Democrats, Republicans, they take a lot of heat when we, when we judge them in light of Scripture. And rightly so. But for a second, I want to pick on our kind of libertarian-esque instinct that says, as long as we're not hurting someone else, we're not doing anything wrong. That's a really foundational ethic in our culture. But it's not biblical. Here, here are the sins that Paul lists for, for things like these. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, fits of anger, drunkenness, orgies. These are all things that you can do by yourself, to yourself, with people who willingly want to join you. Um, if you ever interacted with someone who has, is prone to fits of anger, I always hear stuff like this. I just can't help it. You know, I'm just an angry person. It's who I am. But to that, Paul would say, yeah, that's the problem. Uh, the desire of your flesh is one towards anger and wrath. But the Holy Spirit would call you away from that. 
And then most of these other works of the flesh, these are sexual sins. And if that's all just one thing, Karis, um, it's that God deeply cares about how we use our bodies. God's made us on purpose. He's made us sexual beings on purpose. He's given us a good gift, and he expects it to be stewarded in a specific way. And while few people in the biblical narrative, few people in the church even today, consistently live up to this, it's, and there's always, there's always grace when we fall short. The ideal context for our sexuality is one of marriage, this lifelong, one flesh, covenant union between two sexually different people. That's, that's our context. That's what God is expecting of us through scripture, even though very few people do that well. So Paul lists sins against our community and our neighbors, against ourselves. And then lastly, we have sins specifically uh, directed against God, which fundamentally contradict our relationship with him. Now, all sins certainly inhibit our closeness and our relationship with God. But here I'm looking at these last couple of things. Idolatry and sorcery. I'll admit, um, sorcery is probably not high up on the list of things that most people in the secular, modern West get hung up on. Mm-hmm. Um, not saying it doesn't happen, it certainly does. Um, and it's very, you know, something that happens all across the world if you talk to some of our foreign missionaries. Um, and when we say sorcery, it doesn't mean reading a Harry Potter book, it means when we, it's when we try and manipulate spiritual forces to circumvent the things of God, to circumvent His creation, His design, His will for us, for our community. And then idolatry, which we could really consider kind of the root of every sin, is when we put anything at the center of our lives that's not God. These sins are not so much directly against us or our neighbor, but against God himself. Uh, I think C.S. Lewis does a really good job of kind of illustrating these categories in his book, Mere Christianity. I'll put a quote up on the screen uh, that says this. You can get the idea plain if you think of us as a fleet of ships sailing in formation. The voyage will be a success only in the first place if the ships do not collide and get in each other's way. And secondly, if each ship is itself seaworthy and has her engines in good order. As a matter of fact, you cannot have either of these two things without the other. If the ships keep on having collisions, they will not remain seaworthy very long. On the other hand, if their steering gears are out of order, they will not be able to avoid collisions. But there is one thing we have not yet taken into account. We have not asked where the fleet is trying to get to, and however well the fleet sailed, its voyage would be a failure if it were meant to reach New York, but actually arrived in Calcutta. These three kind of elements of sin, or um, what Lewis is describing the opposite side of that, uh, sins against one another, sins against ourselves. But then that last emphasis on the direction of the fleet is just important. We want to be oriented towards God as we journey together. And when we 
are hung up on the works of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. These things are either a different map that will take us to a different destination, or they're icebergs that will sink our ships. To make the journey properly and safely, we must, as Paul implores, resist by the Spirit the desires and the works of the flesh. So finally, we come to the fruit of the Spirit. The passage that so many of us have heard before, but let's read it again. Verses 22 through 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is such a great passage. So uplifting compared to the last one. All these amazing attributes, there's no law against them. And for those in Christ, the desires of our flesh are being put to death. Crush church. Let me emphasize something. Let me tell you something. This really is an awesome, beautiful passage about the Holy Spirit working in us. But it's also really, really easy to read these and apply this passage in a spiritually dangerous way. I don't know about you, but when I see these kinds of lists, these long lists, these nine attributes, I'm tempted to turn them into a to-do list. I read an article this week about productivity and to-do list apps. And it said, you know, among other things, you know, Benjamin Franklin was kind of, you know, one of the first guys in America to make these to-do lists. And here were some of the things on his daily list. Temperance, frugality, moderation, other virtues. Does that sound familiar? It's not the fruit of the Spirit. Those are still good things. The article also talks about kind of the business side behind these productivity apps and how, though so many exist, no one has really cracked the code for getting people to actually get stuff done. Americans downloaded, this is what the article said, Americans downloaded productivity apps over seven billion times last year. I mean, there's not that many, I mean, it's a billion, with a B. If every person, including every baby, was included as part of the average, that would be 21 apps per person. I didn't download that many, so that means someone else had to make up for that. That's intense. And one of these specific, on one of these specific apps, over 40% of tasks that got made never got marked as completed over the course of a whole year. You see where we're going with this. To-do lists seem great. And there's nothing you know, inherently wrong with them. I use a to-do list pretty regularly. But here's the thing. We as humans are really terrible at checking off every single item. And I hate for you to read this passage, see that cross stitch on your counter of the fruit of the Spirit, and say, and you know, go all Ben Franklin every day. I mean, I love him. Joy. That wasn't very 
notifications. You're just checking these off or not checking off. You can't just work at it like that. You can't, the fruit of the Spirit is not a checklist like this. When we look at the fruit of the Spirit and we make it our moral to-do list, we do the exact thing that Paul has been warning us about for the last five chapters. We turn them into a moral law, and then we put ourselves in chains with it. So if the fruit of the Spirit is not a to-do list, then what is it? Think back to walking around the neighborhood, seeing the gardens. Fruit production, vegetable production, isn't something that you can plug into a math formula or schedule on your calendar months in advance or add to your to-do list. Fruit bearing is a natural product of proper growth. Fruit bearing is the natural product of proper growth. You can plant water, or you can plant, you can water, you can till, you can weed the ground, and you should do all those things. But then it's on the plant to actually produce its fruit or vegetables. And it's the same with us. The Holy Spirit transforms us. When he transforms us, he's the one who cultivates our hearts. And he's the one who causes these fruits to be born out in our lives. The Holy Spirit is the only one who equips and then empowers us to follow Jesus the way we're supposed to. To be the disciples we're called to be. So what's, what's our application for the day? Because it sure seems like I'm telling you that you can't do anything. Let's wrap up by looking at the last two verses of this passage and bringing the fruit of the Spirit to bear in our lives. Let's read verses 24 and 26. Paul says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. If we live by the Spirit, we need to walk by the Spirit. Real quick, in our kind of Christianese language, it's really easy to, you know, conflate the words live and walk. Like when Paul says walk, he means you know, live in a spiritual way, live according to the Spirit. But it doesn't make sense if he just says, if you live by the Spirit, live by the Spirit. It's just redundant. This first live that he's talking about is if we live by the Spirit, it means because we're brought to life. By the Spirit. Before we put our faith in Jesus, before the Spirit transforms us, we're spiritually dead. Not that we're not, you know, walking, but we're spiritually dead. And the Spirit brings us to life. He animates us when He transforms us. If that's the case, continue walking in what the Spirit has already done. Paul tells the Galatian church, and he tells Chara's church, the way we walk and the fruit we bear will have an important impact on our community. Our church community, but also the kind of geographical community we live in too. Think about when we gather together on Sunday mornings, whether you're the person preaching or leading music or cleaning a goldfish out of the carpet or the last person who locks the door. Let us not become conceited. That's right out of this last verse. And let me tell you, as someone who's done a handful of different roles in the church, it's just as easy 
to become conceited for being the last one out and closing the door as it is to be the person preaching. It's just as easy. It's just as tempting. What about when you go over to someone's house for MC, whether they're a doctor or a business person or a student, whether they have a big family or they're single, whether they're an awesome cook or not an awesome cook. <laughs> Let us not envy one another. And when we log into our social media accounts, go home to see our families, or start talking to that one coworker who always runs their mouth, let us not provoke one another. Cars, when the Spirit is working in us, equipping and empowering us, making us a loving, joyful, peacemaking, patient, kind, faithful, gentle, self-controlled people, the way we live with others is totally transformed. We become more and more focused on others, like our King, Jesus. Everything he did was others focused, stepping down from heaven to become human, serving and sharing the gospel with those on the margins of society, dying to forgive my sins and your sins, rising from the dead, taking his seat as the king of all creation for our good and his glory. It's that template that Jesus laid out for us. But he didn't leave us a checklist to accomplish. He gave us his very spirit to lead and transform us, to walk by, to resist the desires of our sinful flesh. And it's only the spirit of Jesus who can equip and empower us for the life of discipleship. Let's pray. God, you are so good. You're more gracious and good to us than we could ever possibly deserve. We thank you for the gifts that you've given to us, for our church family, for your son, and for your spirit who leads us through life together. God, would you make us a people who are mindful of how we walk, where we step, that by your spirit, we would resist the desires of the flesh, that we would bear the fruit that the Spirit produces in us. God, as we continue our time of worship and share this meal together, would you calm our minds and our souls? Would you keep our focus on you? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.